Hello, and welcome to Talking Precision Medicine, Data, Drugs, and AI podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, and challenges and myths of AI in precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Rafael, our CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling in precision medicine. We help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. From heterogeneous data and diverse information stores, we predict with confidence drug targets and biomarkers of tolerance, efficacy, and outcome. Today, we speak with Johnny Ray. Johnny is the head of Discovery Informatics at eTherapeutics, a network-driven drug discovery company. He has extensive experience in applying mathematical and computational techniques to the modeling and analysis of biological systems and is responsible for the conceptual formulation of the network-driven drug discovery approach pioneered at eTherapeutics. We talk about everything from appreciating the complexity of biology to mechanistic modeling to discovering an entirely new chemical compound. Let's get right into it. To get started, uh, I'm excited today to be here with Dr. Johnny Ray. He's the head of Discovery Informatics at eTherapeutics. I love your title. Maybe you can start by telling us a bit about eTherapeutics and, and what you do there. So eTherapeutics is a, uh, a drug discovery company based out of Oxford in the UK. Our focus is that we have a, a novel platform technology that we've developed over the last um, about six or seven years right now that we're um, actually using internally in our own discovery project, our own drug discovery project, and aiming to um, partner with um, bigger biotech and pharma also on um, on discovery projects. Personally, my role of the uh, head of discovery informatics. Um, so I've uh, effectively been involved with the conceptual development of the approach, the network-driven drug discovery approach that underlies our platform, and also in the implementation of the approach and, and building up the team to also implement. I shouldn't say, you know, I certainly haven't done it all myself. How big is your team in discovery informatics? Um, yeah, the the company itself is um, just less than twenty at the moment, okay. and. The informatics team is about eight at the moment, so roughly half of the technical side of the company. And so you mentioned your approach is called network-driven drug discovery. Can you dive in maybe without giving out the secret sauce, but tell us a bit more about what that entails? So at its core, um, it's an application of network biology to the problem of drug discovery. So, you know, network biology has gone through a, you know, big bloom in the last 10, 20 years, um, a lot of work's been done, and we've um, been able to come up with an approach that actually applies some of the concepts and, and, and the academic work that's gone on in that world to the, the core problem of drug discovery. How we, you know, how we view this as a problem or as a, a solution, I guess, is that at its core, phenotype, so disease phenotype or normal phenotype, can't be assigned to the action of individual proteins. It arises from an emergence of multiple proteins and other molecules talking to each other within the cell. Uh, I think that's one of the sort of core principles that's come out of network biology in, in the last few years. So how we utilize that in the drug discovery process is to try and get at, I think, one of the core problems that faces the drug discovery problem, which is when we're trying to discover drugs, we're trying to manipulate phenotype, but inherently we have to manipulate the system at a molecular level. And there's a gap there between the molecular level and the phenotypic level. And we believe networks act effectively as a mechanistic bridge between those levels. 
the way we approach the problem is we try and construct networks that underlie the cellular processes that we want to intervene on with the drug. And then we look for compounds that can intervene on those networks in a significant way. And that's a non-trivial problem because biological networks, by their very nature, are robust. Um, they're thought to underlie some of the robustness properties of biology in general. And it's actually quite hard to perturb those networks significantly. And there's some evidence that actually some of those robustness mechanisms underlie some of the issues with um, efficacy failure in late stage trials as well. So, you know, our core um, approach is to try and build networks that we believe are effectively molecular correlates of the disease phenotype we're trying to perturb with a drug and then use analytics, network analytics, to find compounds that can um, significantly perturb those networks. And, and how does this differ from a tr more traditional uh, drug development approach? Or how are you kind of being disruptive compared to the way a big yes. would do it? Today? I, I, I think the, you know, if you, if you think about um, two core drug discovery approaches, there's the uh, target-driven, which is sort of dominated in the last 20 years, and then there's the phenotypic driven um, that you know has its um, you know had its heyday a few years ago, and there's there's evidence that it's coming to a fore again with sort of a new wave of phenotypic assays. And again, there's a bit of a disconnect between the two, um, really based on on mechanism. You know, target driven is inherently mechanistic, and in it's you're, you're finding individual proteins that you believe are going to disrupt the biology of interest. But that molecular phenotype gap exists there. It's hard to find targets because of that very issue. Um, and on the phenotypic side, you're trying to you know, manipulate function, but then you typically don't have any idea about mechanism. And typically, in a practical sense, the phenotypic assays tend to be lower throughput, can't industrialize in the same way that high throughput screening has been able to industrialize from a target-driven approach. So I believe what our approach allows us to do is sort of conceptually at least bridge that gap between the two realms of a, a sort of a, a functional phenotypic driven approach and a more mechanistic target driven approach um, to allow us to find maybe not targets, but the molecular basis mm -hmm. of how to intervene into a com more complex biological system. And in a practical sense, what it allows us to do is well, what we've, we've sort of shown and demonstrated in the last few years is to use phenotypic cell-based assays in a, in a useful way because we can effectively end up screening in the lab much fewer compounds than you would have to do if you were doing it blind because we effectively screen in silico beforehand. And does e-therapeutics have its own wet lab or do you rely on, on partner organizations to do the ultimate validation? Yeah, so all of our wet lab work is done with CROs, um, okay. contract research organizations. Understood, that makes sense. Can you elaborate? A l I have a, a few questions about uh, disease network construction. So the first yes. one, I, I love the, the tagline, embracing the complexity of biology that I've, I've seen on your website and in various talks yes. that, that you and other colleagues have given. Yeah, biology is hard. It's really hard to engineer. It's hard Absolutely. To, to just take a, a ballpark. To what extent of the, the sort of cellular biology or network activity do you aspire to, to capture in a disease model? It's actually a really interesting question. And I, I actually you know, think this issue is what sort of gets at what we do differently, um, I guess, is that trying to capture that, the complexity that's involved. But it's like, as you say, it's very hard. So what we, we try and do is to construct quite specific networks of quite focused biological mechanisms, we call them intervention strategies, um, that we want to perturb within a cell. So we don't try and construct, for example, um, a network of the whole cell. The networks are typically a sub-network within a whole cell, the one we're aiming to disrupt with a network. And we do this in a, in a couple of ways, sort of conceptually different ways. So one is more knowledge-driven. 
if you have knowledge about the processes, about the proteins involved in the processes, you can use those to construct networks along effectively guilt by association principles. If these things are known to be involved, the things that they interact with in a network context are probably also involved. If you view that in a statistically coherent way, you end up with network construction techniques that we, we use. The other approach, um, which I think quite interesting, is more data-driven approach. So if you don't have knowledge on the mechanisms involved, you can inf- uh, instead use measurements of um, disease versus normal states. Mm-hmm. You know, probably the most typical that we've used are transcriptomic measurements. Right. We've also utilized proteomics or mutation profiles, uh, differential methylation state, anything that tells you about what's different in a disease state relative to the normal state. Uh, and again, they can be used to construct subnetworks that effectively saying that these subnetworks are active in the disease cell and not in the normal cell, and therefore potentially uh, useful targets for a drug discovery um, process. One, one thing I, I did want to make, though, maybe come back to one of the questions you're possibly getting at, and that is the, you know, how accurate are we in constructing these models? And we looked at this quite heavily when we were initially developing the technique and a lot of the data that's out there for in network biology is pretty noisy mm-hmm. you know some of the early yeast yeast hybrid has 40 percent false positive rate for example so we designed some of our analytics to deal with that but probably more importantly our whole process deals with it in that we don't try and make accurate predictions on small numbers of compounds mm-hmm. we view out the output of our in silica as a statistical output and that we have lists of compounds that are enriched in actives. And then we go into the lab and test to find the ones that are actually are active. Right. Um, and that sort of statistical process is how we deal with the biological error and noise. It seems to me that some diseases would be more amenable to this approach than others, perhaps. Can you describe how your team thinks about the opportunity space? What disease should you tackle? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, well, obviously, the first one is, is there an unmet need? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there a business case for, for a disease? In terms of the science, I guess what we would have to, what we, where we would come from is, so is there a system or a network take on the problem? You know, obviously complex disease where it's not single genes that have, are mutated or dysregulated or involved, it's, you know, multiple small changes in multiple uh, genes are sort of ideal cases for mm-hmm. uh, a systems-based approach. Um, and those are the ones we've typically focused on. Mm-hmm. However, there, you know, there is some work in, for example, Huntington's disease, that field there, it's a single gene disease, but the whole field is starting to look at the symptoms as actually a result of the networks rewiring after those initial perturbations. And mm-hmm. therefore, potentially therapeutics would manipulate the network rather than an individual, uh, an individual's the, the, you know, single gene. Uh, we typically haven't focused on single gene diseases. It's been more complex uh, type diseases. I think they are generally more applicable. I'm curious to, to learn more about the kinds of data you touch. So you've mentioned transcriptomics as being an interesting sort of disease versus normal readout and proteomics. Do you leverage the sort of public data, the, the sort of vast genomics world out there? How do you think about public versus kind of private or proprietary data? Again, it's, it's an interesting one, especially for a small company that you know, we don't have massive resources to build up our own proprietary data. So we've mainly, up till now, for our internal projects, utilized public data or a combination of maybe public data and proprietary data that you can buy from data providers. The data we use, I guess, falls into three gross camps. So there is the cellular interaction data I mentioned, and we've built up a database internally of sort of multiple integrated raw sources that give us a unified view of that world, of that data world. 
The other big database we've built up internally is a compound bioactivity database. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, data such that would be in Kemble, for example, as a public okay. source. But there are a large number of proprietary sources as well that we've integrated in. Uh, and then the final sources are the transcriptomic, et cetera, disease normal sources that you mentioned. But interestingly, this is where we're having some of our um, uh, most interesting conversations with potential pharma partners is utilizing, they have large data set, proprietary data sets of this type right. internally that they've collected. And they're keen to extract out more knowledge from those data sets and utilize them in novel ways. We're actually finding we're getting some, some good traction and then maybe the final piece I should mention, which you know, comes back to the AI piece possibly, is there, um, uh, and I guess where we would say we're applying AI, because I don't think at our core of our approach isn't an, a traditional AI approach. It's more mechanistic in its modeling. Mm -hmm. But we utilize AI um, effectively to fill in missing gaps in those available data sources. For example, right. the, the compound bioactivity data. You know, there's a lot of data in Kemble. There's a lot of data in the various other sources but it's still pretty gappy and missing. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of missing data there. So we use machine learning and natural language processing techniques quite heavily to effectively fill in those missing gaps and augment the empirical data sources with predictive. Sure, I was gonna say there's, there's noise and then there's sparsity and those two things are rampant in biology. Uh, indeed, yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess this was sort of when I couched our discussion just throwing the word AI in front of your drug discovery workflow doesn't impress me. It's more interesting to me how you know how you do it. And so if you take absolutely some approach, we try to avoid. Say, you know, in fact, we we go out of our way to say we're not a pure AI driven approach. Mm -hmm. I, I would say, you know, AI could be made illegal tomorrow. However, you define AI, and <laughs> we would still be able to operate um, sure. because it's it's more mechanistic. It is useful. The, yeah. the machine learning, the natural language processing we've mm -hmm. done uh, definitely is useful to give us data to drive that mechanistic modeling. Well, regardless of, of the um, fancy dress or suit that your mathematics wear, uh, how do you view the, the role of, say, the human expert in iteration cycles with your network approach? They're pretty key, I would say. It, it's definitely a bit of a you know, garbage in, garbage out situation, um, like any computational modeling, I would say. And so one of the, you know, the first, effectively the first stage in our discovery approach is, I briefly mentioned it, what we call uh, the identification of uh, intervention strategies. So given what we know about the disease, its pathological, pathophysiological progression, you know, when the patient presents to the doctor, et cetera, what will make a good intervention? You know, how, what mechanisms are involved potentially or what data could give us uh, information on those mechanisms at a, a decent point to actually make a therapeutic intervention. I guess that, that requires a lot of disease knowledge, a lot of um, thinking about networks and systems and, and the sort of bringing of those two things together. There's also a point I would say around the network construction phase that, you know, we have various statistical approaches they all have their, I would say, trade-offs in terms of signal versus noise. Because what we're trying to get at with, with our the network construction, or one of the things we're trying to get at is, you know, this idea of redundant and degenerate pathways. You know, if you construct a network that's, I guess, too accurate, you're throwing away a lot of those potential um, pathways that are active in complex biology and that uh, potentially the cell can utilize to get around a perturbation from a drug. If you go too far the other way, you bring in a lot of garbage. Mm -hmm. um, and again, so that trade-off there relies, I, I think, quite heavily on biological knowledge. So it's, it's definitely not a press a button and get an answer out approach. You need to know quite a lot about the biology, the cellular biology and the disease. 
So do you take then like a consensus approach to sort of multiple competing models or, or maybe even like a stacking approach to see if you can get them to speak together? Maybe not formally, mm -hmm. but somewhat informally. Yes. Yeah. So for a particular project um, at the network level, we will typically construct multiple networks. They can represent both different hypotheses of how to intervene on the system. And then you might not use a consensus approach because you're effectively attacking different mechanisms, but they can also represent say, different sets of data or knowledge informing you about the same mechanism. And in that case, you would take a consensus approach of, you know, which techniques give rise to the same predicted compounds, uh, et cetera. Yeah. On our machine learning side of things, we certainly do take a formal um, ensembling approach for, for machine learning predictions. So, yeah. Well, I guess that you have the ultimate validation, which is then to go in the lab and see if you're right. That sort of the approach we took at the beginning, yeah, yeah was, um, you know, we, we didn't know how good this approach was going to be, how accurate, mm. et cetera. Like I said, looked at, when we looked at some of the original data, it didn't look that good. Mm -hmm. So we were concerned. So we thought, okay, let's do a mm -hmm. statistical approach and go into the lab and test the results. To the extent that, again, you're willing to kind of share your history of the therapeutics, can you describe uh, a success case, well, you know, something that maybe you guys like to publicize or, or even haven't told the world about where your approach has really proven valuable? Yeah, maybe one of the the um, the example I could utilize is maybe um, one of our internal projects that we're actually progressing at the moment. It's probably the one that's most furthest on in the drug discovery process mm -hmm. post the in silico phase, mm -hmm. um, and that's a an immune oncology program around tryptophan uh, catabolism. You know, the the biological mechanism of tryptophan tryptophan catabolism. There's a lot of interest in it at the moment. There's a, a number of sort of preclinical candidates, although there has been some negative press in the recent months after a, a sort of a, a late stage failure. So hopefully that's an anomaly. You know, the bottom line is that you know cancer cells have been observed to dysregulate the tryptophan catabolism pathway to create um, suppression of the immune response. The idea here was to identify small molecule uh, modulators of that the tryptophan um, catabolism um, mechanisms with a different mechanism of action than some of the uh, the existing compounds that are on the market or actually in, in the clinic, should I say, not on the market at the moment. You know, the way we approached this was we, as I mentioned, we, did, we, you know, we looked at the sort of the network context around those pathways. We looked at data um, that had been observed in those contexts in you know, cells where the various known players were upregulated or downregulated um, in cancer cells that are known to have um, dysregulation of these pathways, etc. And utilized all of those networks to predict compounds, tested them in cell-based assays that we're looking at was the, um, you know, the levels of tryptophan and kynurin in its product changed um, over time. And we had tested a few hundred compounds, I believe around 300 in our assays, which is sort of on the lower end of the number we test. And we got a hit rate of about 11% out of our assays, which is actually pretty good for a, 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 screening, sure. a screening campaign. Uh, and then we followed a number of those up and through the various stages of sort of post in silico, basically into a hit to lead optimization phase. And so we've got a, a lead series now that has gone through a hit to lead optimization phase. Uh, we've produced unique chemical matter from that. We've filed composition of matter patents. So we've discovered something completely novel chemically wise. Wow. We know the mechanism of action is unique and differentiated from any of the agents in the clinic. And we're in the process of hopefully showing that that uniqueness is actually beneficial. Um, and we're, and we're um, moving into uh, tumor models as well. Fantastic. It's not that's every probably day our most someone, advanced program at the moment. Yeah, not every day someone can claim they discovered a new 
chemical or, or even mechanism of action for that matter. So that's, that's. Uh, yeah, that's what we're, um, we seem to be, you know, for the ones we've um, taken far enough, you know, it is, it's a theoretical claim of, of our approach that we could discover novel MOA. And it certainly seems that the ones that we've taken far enough where we've actually looked and spent the money to look, we certainly are doing. So um, yeah, um, we're optimistic. Let's uh, take a, a step into the way, way back machine. So you mentioned theoretical. Now, if I'm not mistaken, your, your PhD was in theoretical neuroscience or was it computational neuroscience? I remember reading um, theory on your CV. Yes. Well, yeah, actually, my original PhD was in, I guess, what they would call AI now. Um, it was in the <laughs> mathematics of neural networks. Okay. Um, back in the sort of hype in the, um, the late 80s. I came from an engineering background and, and then moved into biology doing the PhD, sort of, as on neural networks, but I did it in, a, in, a, in the medical school, in the medical school okay. in the physiology department. Based on that, decided to... I was interested in real neural networks and moved into, uh, as a postdoc, into computational neuroscience, where I was effectively trying to, I was involved in modeling perception and, and particularly interested in, um, you know, how networks of the brain give rise to perception. And, and how has your, your skill set and your professional training evolved over these last than two decades or so? Yeah, it's, it's been a, an interesting progression when I look back on it, I guess. So, yeah, as I said, so my, you know, my academic interests at that point were in, around, you know, how networks of the brain give rise to function. And then yeah, I left academia, um, went into the biotech world, actually in San Francisco at the time, and worked for both sort of tool companies doing uh, gene chip work um, and for drug companies. So I was involved and introduced at that point to, uh, you know, a lot of sequence level bioinformatics, I guess, traditional bioinformatics, mm -hmm. uh, more computational biology in drug discovery, looking at um, biomarker identification, mm -hmm. um, those sorts of aspects. Um, and then also, um, I guess, more pure technology, software engineering around drug discovery informatics. Um, and then, you know, and learning and picking up the techniques as I have sort of gone along, basically. And then coming back to e-therapeutics, it's almost bringing together those two worlds. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, a lot of the concepts from network um, neuroscience have been applied here, but applied to the cell rather than the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and then a lot of the, the work that I'd seen done in, um, you know, in computational biology over the years within the drug discovery concepts, frankly, it was machine learning and various approaches that could be called AI now. It wasn't called AI at the time. Sure. Uh, applied to, you know, gene chip analysis or transcriptomic analysis, et cetera. Um, a lot of those informatics um, techniques, et cetera, applied uh, in the current context. So it's a sort of a melding of the, uh, of the various pieces of my career. Well, let's talk about AI for a second. So first, I'm, I'm curious to know how you define it, because like you said, if it were made illegal, we wouldn't actually know what they've outlawed. No two people see yes, it call yes. it the same thing. So how, how do you define AI, I guess, as it relates to biomedical data? Yeah, I think that, you know, when people, when I, when I see people using the terms, I think what most people are referring to is machine learning approaches. Um, I, I think that's the, um, and I wouldn't want to put a percentage on it, but 80% of the, uh, you know, the, the cases when you see someone are using AI techniques, they, they're really talking about machine learning. You know, obviously the deep learning world has sort of fueled this current hype a little bit in, um, uh, in, in the machine learning world. There's also the, the area of natural language processing, I guess, mm -hmm. which sometimes falls under the AI umbrella, uh, is also, I, I think, I see quite often mm -hmm. utilized as well, maybe less so than the, the machine learning. But yeah, I think the bottom line is those two techniques that um, I think most of the time it's, it's, it is those. 
Sure. I think NLP has a real home in kind of the patient care side of things. So that, yeah, I think that's maybe more where it'll see. And I think that's where Watson, et cetera, has mm -hmm. potentially um, you know, seen some grounds. Although, you know, we've seen it, you know, we've had some success in uh, utilizing it just to, uh, you know, sort of scan the wider literature, you know, for wider knowledge. We've done a, a collaboration project with a, a company, a UK company called Biorelate, who specialize in sort of biologically related NLP technology. Mm -hmm. And just asking the question, okay, we've got this disease area, for example, that we're interested in. Can you scan the wider literature and identify some molecular players for us and things like that? And it's, it's useful. Where do you think maybe the hype has run away and, and sort of the, the promises of, quote, AI in, in drug discovery or healthcare have, have, uh, have not proven um, true, not come to, to fruition? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. You know, I'm I'm a little biased, maybe, but I, I actually think the early biology world is mm -hmm. one of the areas where you know I've seen a lot of claims of it'll solve early biology. Not really from practitioners, I wouldn't have said. It may be more from the tech side, and I haven't actually seen much progress on that side. On even on things like target ID, maybe some work on biomarker work but still not that much on on that side of things there has been a lot of hype especially from the tech world of you know we're gathering all this genomics information and all of the you know the other various molecular profiling information and we'll be able to throw machine learning at it and solve biology i haven't seen anything really that's made any progress along those lines we've established that biology is complex so you know we'll it, see. yes indeed i yeah so you guys are in oxford is that right yes that's right that must be an exciting place to be right now. I, everything I, I read, it seems that Oxford and Cambridge are really leading the way in the sort of, let's just call it the, the digital revolution in biology, the, the data science. What's, it, what's the environment like over there? It is actually very interesting. Yeah, there's, um, yeah we have a, a, a couple of um, PhD programs that we're actively involved with. So we get to interact with the university. You know, they're you know, actively pushing, uh, I guess, this cross-disciplinary research uh, program at the PhD level. It's programs that have been going. There's one, uh, the Systems Approach to Biomedical Sciences program. It's been going for a number of years now. That's, you know, it's, it's basically actively training people from computational sciences in biology and vice versa. Very active program, cross-departmental, um, a lot of exciting work going on. And then there's, you know, a lot of um, even, you know, practical drug discovery work. There's a new couple of institutes that have opened up recently on the Oxford campus. They're explicitly looking at trying to translate academic um, assays, for example, into a more industrial setting, things like those lines. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of interesting, exciting stuff going on. All right, I've just got two more questions, and the, this one is, is always the humbling one. Um, to the extent you're willing to share maybe a not-so-success story from either your work at eTherapeutics or before, where you took on a data challenge and, man, it just didn't pan out. I don't have a, a specific problem, but I do have a few over the years that have, um, that have come up, and I, 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 I identified some sort of key reasons, okay. uh, I guess, for those. Um, and it was sort of all around the data. So I think the big one, uh, a few years ago at least, was that the data sets were just too small to actually build decent uh, machine learning models against. Um, and I actually think that is one of the, the drivers of the current uh, uptake in the practical applicability of the machine learning approaches is that our data sets have got to a size where, you know, if you go back to the, you know, what machine learning used to be called statistical pattern recognition, there's enough representative data points now to identify those patterns in the mm -hmm. statistics of the data. But that certainly has bitten us in the past of, you know, trying an approach and just 
you know, not getting anywhere from, from that. Another one, which is actually trickier, I think, is that, okay, you've got a reasonably big data set, but it actually doesn't reflect reality very well. Mm-hmm. So the data's biased, for example, in its collection. And this happens quite a lot in biology in that you always have way more positive examples than negative examples. You know, people don't publish negative results. And so that can really bite you if you're not careful. Or just put a barrier up of saying, okay, I, I just can't get anywhere with certain approaches because I don't have, you know, the counterexamples to train. So I would say those are the two big ones that have, you know, hampered I almost got bitten by it by, you know, thought we'd had something and then didn't. Um, there was ways around it, so, but it was recognizing it was a problem. Mm-hmm. Was the, the case when your real world classes, so if you've got a two-class classifier in your, in your question, the case where in the real world, but maybe not in your data, those real world classes are massively imbalanced. You can build a, you know, a model that predicts in those cases with quite, say, good false positive rate, you know, good, good accuracy, etc. But if the vast majority of, for example, patients you're testing in the world actually aren't positive, then right. most of your positive results are going to be false positives. There are some Bayesian techniques to get around that. Mm-hmm. But if you're not aware of the problem, and I wasn't aware of the problem right. until it was pointed out to me by a, a colleague who's smarter than me, it can bite you. And that's actually, I think, quite a critical one in biomedical sciences. For example, it's some of those issues are behind the people questioning, you know, large scale screening in prostate cancer and and breast cancer, for example, because, you know, most people don't have either of those diseases in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, if you do blind screening across those patients, you will get most people who are positive or false positives. My last question was about lessons learned. So it seems like one of them is make sure the data scientists are talking to the biologists who are talking to the doctors and have those conversations regularly. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a bit of a believer, especially at the moment, that the maths and the computational side has almost become a commodity. And where the real gains and insights can come is in knowing the problem better, possibly in, in feature engineering, in, in knowing your data better mm-hmm. and extraction of, of better data out of that. And that, as you say, is the data scientists need either the knowledge themselves or need to talk to the to the relevant people in a, in a cross-disciplinary team. It's critical, I think. Fantastic. Johnny, this was so much fun. So again, um, I've been talking with Dr. Johnny Ray. That's all the questions I have for you. Um, thanks so much for your time today. This was the second episode of Talking Precision Medicine, Data, Drugs, and AI. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.